Uh, thank you so much for joining with us again today. Thank you to Jonathan and Jack for leading us uh, and leading our thoughts around uh, the praises that we can bring to our good God. Isn't it good to praise his name and to hear from him? So, uh, And we're going to be, uh, as Jonathan has said, we're going to be gathering around uh, his word in Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, and it is good to, to hear from God's word. Um, maybe that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it is good for us to do. It's good for us to be reminded uh, of the timeless and unshifting nature of God's word. I think particularly in the midst of a couple of weeks where there's been complete global turmoil, it is good for us to be reminded of God's unchanging, his sovereign and his ruling word. Uh, God's word is what directs us. God's word is what gives us truth, capital T, truth. And so in a world where we see so much shifting sand, uh, it is good for us to be reminded of, of God's goodness and his gift to us in his word. And that's maybe something that we've mentioned um, before certainly, but and, and I, and I don't, in some ways don't make any apologies for that. That over the last couple of years, it feels like for many of us, we've just been stumbling from one uncertainty to another, whether personally or on a, on a kind of global scale. So it is good for us to be refreshed and to be intentionally turning to what God, the, the eternal God, uh, has to say to us through His Word. Uh, and today we do reach chapter four of Nehemiah. We're in this series. Uh, that we've called Rebuild and Restore, looking at the, the story of Nehemiah, this great Old Testament history book, which shows the, the account of the walls in Jerusalem being rebuilt uh, as the people of Jerusalem are returning from exile in the 6th century BC. Um, but, but as we've said in previous weeks, this is so much more than a story about bricks and mortar. Uh, this, is a, this is an account where we see God seeking to rebuild and restore his people, th- those people that he had chosen to be his representatives here on earth, but who had wandered from him. And so Nehemiah is part of that story of God calling them back to himself, calling them graciously to restore him, God, as the object of their faith, as their Lord and as their king who they will live under the rule of. And so, yes, walls are being rebuilt. and We will read stories of that again today. But that rebuilding is a picture for us to the rebuilding and restoring work that God is doing, where he is rebuilding and restoring God's people in God's place for God's purpose. And that may sound like a very neat and tidy soundbite summary of the book of Nehemiah, and perhaps it is. Um, but this book shows us that this rebuilding process was anything but smooth. We've already seen some opposition coming at the end of chapter 2, and today this whole chapter speaks of some of the opposition that was coming and how the people responded to that opposition. And so without wanting to jump too far from what this text is showing us, I think that's a helpful thing for us to realize that it's a pattern in the Bible. It, it is... It is a gift that God has shown us through his word that when he is at work or when his people are seeking to faithfully follow him, opposition will come. The enemies of God will want to quash what God is doing. Now, as we will celebrate joyously around the table, nothing can quash what God is doing. He is victorious and he is sovereign. However, we as his people following him in the 21st century, many of us know the reality of seeking to live a life faithful to the teaching of Scripture, faithful to following Jesus under his lordship and care of our lives, yet facing opposition. And as we'll see today, that opposition can come from a few different places. And so it is good for us to notice this pattern throughout Scripture. What a gracious thing that God has given us to show that the opposition we face in some ways is not unique to us as followers of Jesus, but his people have been facing opposition from the dawn of time, it would seem. And so his enemy, God's enemy, Satan, is active seeking to distort God's truth, seeking to distract God's people. 
Uh, and so it is good for us to see these stories in the Bible and not only to see the reality of that opposition, but also to see how the people of God and how God himself teaches us how we should respond to that opposition when it comes. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see the reality that the opposition was coming to the Jewish, uh, to the, the builders in Jerusalem. Uh, that is a pattern for us of the opposition that, that God's people face in many different ways and in many different times. But also what we'll see is how his people respond. Uh, and not just in a, in a withstanding that opposition, but in actually growing in the face of it. And so we'll see that today as we venture into Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn uh, to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and there happens to be one of the red hardback pew ones sitting in a chair, please take that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, that's our gift to you. We'd love you to have a copy of God's uh, timeless, eternal, life-changing word. Uh, so please do take that or at least look up Nehemiah chapter 4 uh, if you have a chance to do, to do that. So Nehemiah chapter 4, as I said, we'll read through the whole chapter this morning. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, so straight in, we're, we're back into words and phrases. You maybe remember Sanballat. We'll, we'll come back to think about that. But here we're told that we were rebuilding. This is Nehemiah narrating this. So when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he asked, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring their stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So, verse 6, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put them an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, 
The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by day and as workers, sorry, guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. And we pray that God will bless the reading and meditation of his word. And so as we read through this chapter, uh, there, there's much that we could consider of it from this morning. But I think that there's two main things that God would have us look at. And those are uh, the reality of the opposition and the response to the opposition. That might not sound very dramatic or very interesting, but that's what I see clearly through this passage. Indeed, it, the passage seems to bounce at times from opposition to response, opposition to response. And it's a dramatic chapter. There's, there's, there's tension here in this back and forth. The, the builders seem to be going well, and then an opposition comes. And the opposition seems to be building and building and building, and then there's a, a calm response from Nehemiah in the midst of it. And so it's not just a piece of drama. It's not just an exciting piece of history. This isn't just good literature for us to engage in. God has something to teach us here through his word about how his people in all places and at all time we face the reality of opposition. But then, as we've already said, this passage shows what our response to that opposition should be. And so firstly, let's take a look at the reality of the opposition that was coming against the wall builders in Jerusalem uh, and how, they, how that might help us to be on our guard against it. Because one of the things that we see from the reality of the opposition is that it comes from a couple of different places. Namely, it comes from those without, comes from outside those building the walls, and then it seems to come from within, from the people of Judah themselves. And so firstly, let's take a look at the opposition from without. And by that, I mean how the chapter starts. Thinking about Sambalat, Tobiah, and the others who are working together to plot against God's people, to plot against what God is trying to do to rebuild these walls. And so there are external forces, if you like, trying to oppose the work of God. And as I said, these names, Sambalat and Tobiah, they'll be familiar to us if you've been following along in our series. They previously, Sambala and Tobiah primarily previously raised their opposition to the rebuilding work back in chapter 2. In verse 10 and in verse 19, they make an appearance to, to show their displeasure at what is going on. And that's even interesting to note because in the days that have passed from the middle and end of chapter 2 to now at the start of chapter 4, there's been a lot of rebuilding going on. If you can remember back a few weeks till we went through chapter 3, that long list of names and how the walls were being rebuilt. And in that time of rebuilding, the emotions that these guys are feeling have got more entrenched. So back in, in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we read this, that, that when Sambalat and that Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, that was that someone was coming back to care for Jerusalem's walls, they were very much disturbed. But then look at how verse 1 starts of chapter 4, when Sambalat heard that the rebuilding of the wall had begun, he became angry and was greatly incensed. The ESV has that word as enraged. Um, again, we see that later in verse 7, that when Sambala, Tobiah, and the others, they hear about what's going on, and they're getting quite upset about it, and it, verse 7 finishes with, they were very angry. So this disturbance that these opponents had first felt has now grown to full-blown anger. It has festered as they've watched this rebuilding continue. And so there's a strong emotion that is driving the opposition that is being brought to the people. These guys clearly feel aggrieved for some reason as to what's going on. 
But, but what's interesting is the steps that they take and the method that they use to try to oppose this work um, shouldn't really surprise those of us who know how the opponents of God work in the past. So when, when God's opponents face opposition, very often it comes and it starts in this same way that these, method, uh, these guys are using. In chapter 4, their methods pick up exactly where they left off at the end of chapter 2. They attack with their words. They ridicule the people. They hurl insults. And they, they chuck slurs like grenades trying to, to break the spirit of the people who are rebuilding the walls. And, and words have, have, have a great ability to do that, actually. When it comes to breaking someone's spirit, words have an incredible power to be able to do that. And many of us know that and know the destructive power that words have. And maybe that's because we've been on the receiving end of some of that criticism that just seems to slice us right to the core. It knocks us for six. It, it, it erodes our confidence. It, it takes away our, our desire and our ability to do whatever we have just been criticized for. Um, or maybe some of us know the destructive power of words because we've said them. Um, we've been quick with our tongue. And our mind and our heart hasn't had that filter of love and grace and patience. And so our words have just blurted out and they have caused untold damage. But again, that reality and the, the power of words and the, particularly the potential for damage of our words shouldn't surprise those of us who know the Bible. God tells us that this will be the case. In James 3, he says the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body sets the course of one's life on fire as is itself set on fire by hell. These are strong words for us, but we know them to be true. Words have the ability to destruct, to shatter lives. And so we know the destructive potential of words. And that's what Sambalat and Tobiah and the others, that's where they start with their, their opposition. They ridicule, just like they did in chapter 2, and they started it again. Yet when we look more closely at the words that are being slung out, I think it shows us where their attack is focused. And actually that shows us the weakness of their attack. So in verse 2, when we examine some of the words that they use, here's Sambalat speaking. And the first words that he says in public are, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burnt they are? You see how his focus is on the people? Can they do this? Can they rebuild the wall? Will they finish in a day? You see, it's focused on the people and the people's ability to complete their task. And so they're ridiculing the people. And of course, as hearers of that, that's going to be very difficult for the builders to take. But in pointing Sambalat's aggression at them, he's also showing that he's missed the point of who's really in control of this building project. Nehemiah told him this when he first came at him with objections back in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah said to Sambalat, the God of heaven will give us success in this. The God of heaven will give us success. But here Sambalat is attacking the people. Are they going to rebuild this? Who do they think they are, these feeble Jews? But he's missed the point that God is the one behind this rebuild. And we've seen this a number of times through the first three chapters of this wonderful book, that God is sovereignly in control. He's the one who's called Nehemiah to this rebuilding project in the first place. He's the one who united that mixed group of people that we saw in chapter 3 to undertake this massive task. He's the one who's ultimately the object of the people's worship. And so he's the one who's the reason for the rebuilding. This is the wonderful story of God's orchestration, of God's sovereignty. 
But in Sambalat slurring and ridiculing the people, it shows that he's missed the hand of God in this. And in doing so, and with, when we read it with that mindset, I wonder actually, the Jews who heard those ridiculing words could actually agree with a lot of what Sambalat is saying. They know that they can't build this wall, but God can. They know that they don't have the strength, but God has given them the strength. They know that, that they can't restore what, what has been broken. They know that they can't take these burn stones and turn something amazing out of it, but God can. They know that God is the one that they will offer sacrifices to. They know that God will give them success, as Nehemiah said at the end of chapter 2. They know that God will build something new and vibrant out of what has been destroyed before and burned in these piles of rubble. And so what is God showing us through this example? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, Drew, you're just playing semantics with these words. But you see, what I think we'll come on to see through further examples as well is that the doubting words that Sambalat is trying to chuck at these people, they can be crippling. But the best, if not the only way to stand in the face of those crippling words is to know the truth of God. God had called the people to rebuild the wall. And so Sambalat could stand there and say, what are you doing? How can you rebuild the wall? You don't have the strength. And the people could have said, we know. But God is rebuilding the wall. We know his truth. And so we can stand against what you're trying to ridicule us for. In essence, it comes down to a question of whose voice these builders are going to pay attention to. Will they listen to Sambalat as he tries to ridicule, or will they listen to the timeless truth and the faultless character of the God who's called them to this work? The God who's equipped them for this work. The God who is accomplishing what he will accomplish. And that question of whose voice they're going to pay attention to, that's where we then see a link from this story to ours. Because that style of opposition, of words and, and doubting thoughts and messages, those are the same kind of tactics that Satan has been using from the very beginning. And he will continue to try to use against those of us who follow Jesus. See, back in the Garden of Eden, he whispers doubting questions into Eve's ear that leads her into sin. In the wilderness, when Satan approaches a famished and exhausted Jesus, he whispers empty promises into his ear and questions his identity. And it's the same thing that he will do with all of us who seek to follow Jesus. Maybe he'll whisper into our ear, did did God really say? But but no one will ever know. Ah, You deserve a little perk. Everyone lets their guard down sometimes. The the Bible isn't really clear on that actually, so you're probably okay. Ah, the this will make you truly happy. Not, not, the, not the restrictive way of Jesus. No, this is true happiness. Surely, surely you can't think that God would love you. Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. These doubting, subtle, seemingly subtle, but ultimately potentially destructive things, if we pay attention to them, it's the tactic that Satan has been using from the beginning. And it's the reality of our opposition to these doubting, ridiculing, hellish words. And and so how are we to respond? When they come, they will come, either from without or, as we'll see in a few moments, from within. How do we respond? Well, the difference between Eve and Jesus is to tell us how we're to respond. Jesus responds resolutely with the truth of God's word. 
He stands on what he knows to be true, not what he thinks is true, what he knows to be true. Eve knows God's word, but, but doesn't put that word into action. Adam, by the way, is seemingly standing by watching this all happen and then just joins in in the sin after the event. But Jesus, Jesus knows the truth. He knows his father's word and he stands firm on it. Whatever the cost, whatever and however strong that temptation might be, he stands firm on the truth, capital T truth, that he knows. Because Jesus knows that nothing that the enemy offers will come close, ever come close to the eternal joy of living life faithfully following his father. So how do we stand against it? Well, we stand firm on the truth. And and, and that sounds like the ideal answer, doesn't it? It's as easy as that. Now, of course, living life in a fallen world with our own sinful temptations, we are not Jesus. Jesus didn't have sin in and of himself. We are still trying to rid ourselves of sin, even though Jesus has forgiven it fully for us, for those of us who have repented in faith and trust in what he's done. And so he, God knows that we need help, and he doesn't leave us on our own to battle against this. He, he, he gives us his strength. He, he provides his constant presence by his Holy Spirit. He, is a, he gives us an ever-present ear in our prayer. We have access into the Father through the blood of Christ, so that we can stand firm, not on our own strength, but on what he has said and how he equips us. And so we ask for his help. Nehemiah and the builders of the wall do exactly that too. They turn in dependent prayer, as we'll see in a few seconds. And that example shows that they wanted to hear God's voice and know God's truth way above the opposition and the doubting lies that they were hearing from outside. No, they wanted to persevere in prayerful dependence, and that's what he did. That's what he did. And so it's important for us that, that we place truth at the center of our vision, God's truth. Because other messages will come our way. They will seek to distract and distort. But God's truth is timeless. God's truth is eternal. God's truth, to put it simply, is true. And so let's keep that front and center of our minds. Because the contrary messages will come from from many different ways. As we've seen, firstly, this opposition and these contrary messages for the rebuilders of the walls are coming from without. Sambalad and his mates ridiculing the believers. And maybe, maybe we know that sense of an external opposition. Uh, friends, family members, co-workers who, who are verbal in their opposition to our faith. And maybe it's just that wider sense of the, what seems to be the current of culture, that, that not only where it is no longer just... Um, unpleasant to be a Christian. It's actually the bad thing to be a Christian. Uh, Maybe we feel the weight of that pull of wider society. Whatever it is, we feel that external force as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. But but as we turn to to verses 10 and 12, we see opposition coming from within as well, within the community, from those within Judah. And so verse 10, we see some serious concerns about the ability of the laborers. I'll read that verse in a second. And in verse 12, we see this rising fear of the inevitability of the attack that will come and, and maybe it's too strong even to call this opposition from within. Maybe these are just internal doubts, internal worries. And, but it's clear that there's an atmosphere of fear. That there's a sense of an ominous threat that will overpower these people. And so if we're to try to characterize um, these negative messages that we see in verse 10 and verse 12, I think what we see in verse 10 is an overwhelming awareness of the present struggle. And in verse 12, we see an overwhelming awareness 
of the future possibility. So in verse 10, let me show you what I mean. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. There's an overwhelming awareness of the present struggle. And then in verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. There's an overwhelming awareness of the future possibility. Now, let's be clear. The Jews were facing very real present and future dangers. These concerns are not unfounded. People haven't made these concerns up. But the important phrase that I'm using here is overwhelming awareness of the present struggle and the future possibility. I'm not suggesting that the way these Jews should have dealt with the issue was to pretend that these things don't exist. Just bury your head in the sand. Now, what Nehemiah shows us through the rest of this chapter proves that that isn't the right response in this case. However, these, the issues that these Jews are facing have grown in the vision of the people. They have become so overwhelmingly aware of these things that it has clouded their understanding of what we've just talked about, about the truth of God's word. You see the, the definiteness and the, the conviction they have that these things are definitely going to happen. The present struggle, the overwhelming awareness of the present struggle meant that we cannot build this wall. It's an interesting term, isn't it? Verse 12, it says, the attack will come. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. But actually, it's clear by that that the focus has gone from some of these individuals. They can't see the reality that God has said that the wall will be rebuilt. So cannot doesn't come into it. But yeah, when our focus drifts from the truth of God's word, then we do these these an overwhelming awareness of the present struggle or the future possibility can overtake our vision. And it's not, as we've said, it's not the real, it's not, I'm not saying that these problems and these issues aren't real for many of us. I suppose it's a question of how much bandwidth we're willing to give to those issues. Or are they going to, are we going to allow them to speak louder to us than the truth of God's word? See, we see embodied for us here in Nehemiah that that he hears the concerns. He no doubt feels these concerns too, but he apparently isn't overwhelmed. There is another way to respond than just being overwhelmed. Instead, he responds, and we'll quickly finish with these three things that Nehemiah shows us. And that in the reality, when facing the reality of opposition, whether that's a present struggle that's coming or a future possibility that might come, he shows these three uh, ways to respond, that he prays, that he participates, And he praises. And we've already spoken about Nehemiah's prayers. We see them here in verse 4. Hear us, O God. It it, it turns directly from the narrative speaking about what Tobiah has said to then Nehemiah praying. Hear us, O God. And in verse 9, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard. Nehemiah prays. And he encouraged others to pray. But it doesn't end just with the prayer. We've noticed this in chapter 1 already with Nehemiah when he prays and then he does something. Nehemiah prays and then he does something. He participates. And I think it's important that we think of Nehemiah's actions here as participating, not just acting. And there's a subtle distinction that I think is really important for us to get at because if we think that Nehemiah prays and then just heads off in his own steam, then I think we miss the dependency that he shows here on how God is leading him. See, in verse 4 and verse 5, we see Nehemiah prays against his enemy. And then in verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall. He acts because of his prayers. He acts 
because of what God has shown him in the past and what he knows to be true. It's the same later um, when we see that uh, in verse 9, but we prayed and posted a guard. So Nehemiah, it was on Nehemiah's prayerful dependence that he then acted. He didn't run ahead of where God was leading him. He didn't do it on his own steam. He didn't act first and then ask God to bless that act retrospectively. Nor did he pray and then assume that God was going to sort it out in some kind of abstract way. No, he prayed and then was ready to respond to how God would lead him to participate. See this in verse 22. Nehemiah stands and says, our God will fight for us. And then everybody picks up a spear and a sword and is ready to participate. See, they pray and they depended fully on God and then they were ready to actively participate in what God was going to use them and if God was going to use them to answer their prayers. See, prayer and action are not always mutually exclusive. As long as that action is actually a participation in how God is leading us forward. So we pray But we don't always stay there. We don't always end there. We pray and then we're ready for God to lead us into action. And that's why it's participation. It's not just action on our own. It's participating with how God is leading us on. And so prayer and participation, they go together. Um, and, And this is maybe a challenge for some of us because we need to be ready, just as ready as Nehemiah and the other builders were to participate when God calls us to. When he leads us to do so, God is the main actor. We participate with him, yes. And so we often pray and we rightly pray for those who we know and love who don't know Jesus themselves yet. So let's pray those prayers, yes. And then let's be ready to participate if God gives us the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them. To share the love, the overwhelming love of God for them. That even while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. He takes the penalty of the weight and of the wrath of God upon himself so that we don't have to face it for the sin that we have. And in faith and in trust and in repentance of faith, then our, our sin is transferred to Jesus. His righteousness is transplanted to us. And so we can then approach God. We can live in relationship with the Holy, Eternal Father for all of this life and for all of eternity to come. That's the good news of Jesus. Let's be prepared to share it when we pray that God would save those that we know and love, he may use us to help with that. He doesn't need us, but he graciously invites us to pray with him. Or, or maybe we, we pray for peace and stability in Ukraine, as we have done this morning, and rightly so. So then let's be ready to, to graciously give to those who have been displaced. Let's be ready to 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 seek to support our Christian brothers in Belarus and in Russia who are standing against this war. Let's in our conversations with those around us about the uncertainty of life that this war has thrown, the shadow over the whole world, let's be ready to share of our complete confidence in the sovereign and ruling reign of Jesus Christ. Let's be people who pray that our neighborhoods would be safe and, and gracious places to live. And then let's live in those ways. Let's show grace to our neighbors. Let's be generous with our time and our money. Let's show call, uh, the, the people around us that we mean what we believe. It's the same when we walk into work. Let's, let's speak to our colleagues with kindness, with love, with winsomeness, so that when contentious issues arise, when people assume that the Bible is not loving or not kind, they look at our lives and see love and kindness 
And they're drawn to realize the Bible is good. The Bible is true. God is loving and kind. Even in the things that he seemingly restricts. It is for our good and for his glory. And so we live expectant that God will open the doors for us to to be used by him. We pray knowing that he is the one who ultimately works and is in control of all things. And then we live ready to participate in how he lives and leads us. So we pray, we participate, and all the while we praise. I love this verse in in verse 14. When Nehemiah, having looked all things over, he stood up to the nobles and the officials and said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You see, we live a life constantly focusing our hearts and our minds. Despite the distractions around us, we constantly focus our hearts and our minds on him. And therefore, as Romans 12 says, we continually live and offer a sacrifice of praise. So in every situation we find ourselves in, we remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. The opposition we're facing is tough. It is driving me to distraction. It is, it is pulling me down. It is almost breaking my spirit. But the Lord is great and awesome. And so we turn our eyes to him. We see his goodness, his unchanging nature. And therefore, out of that deep level of devotion and praise, our focus is on him. And therefore, we allow him to move through us to impact our decisions and our actions and our words. And so we continually offer the sacrifice of praise. We pray, we participate, we praise. Those are some of the ways that we respond to the opposition that is real and that will come. And as faithful followers of Christ, God asks us to faithfully follow him in all things at all times. And he has equipped us to do just that. So through Nehemiah 4, we see the reality that in faithfully following God's way, opposition will come. It's a reality. Jesus promised his followers exactly the same thing. The letters of Paul speak regularly about the battles we're in spiritually and culturally. Yet yet armed with the recognition that opposition is a reality, we should then be more ready to respond. And how do we respond? We respond by praying, dependently praying, and then participating as God leads us on. And we praise the unchanging eternal Father King. See, God does equip us for the fight and he encourages us through places like Ephesians 6. And I want to just thinking of the armor of God, which all of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus and have committed our lives to following him, this is what God has told us to do, asked us to do, gifted us with for the struggles and the opposition that we may face. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the bre- with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keeping, keep on praying for all the Lord's people. See, the Lord equips us for the opposition that we will face. He equips us and, and encourages us to be alert, to be ready, to stand firm. And to stand strong against the spiritual forces at work. That may be very obviously coming from without and from around us. May be very subtly seeking to erode our faith from within. But we stand firm. Not in our own strength, but on his truth. As we seek to faithfully follow him. Because of all that he has done for us. We pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is, is good and true in all places and at all times. And so we thank you for the example and the, the account that we see for us here in Nehemiah 4. Thank you that, 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 that Nehemiah as an individual was able to stay and keep his focus on you. That he was able to declare that you are indeed great and awesome. And Father, those of us who know and love you, we want to declare that again for ourselves this morning. We know you to be great and awesome. Despite what is going on and may be going on in our lives, we know that you are great and awesome. We know that you have already set the day when you will come again in glory, when we will be able to see tangibly your victory, which has already been won over your enemy. And so we pray that as we wait for that day, either for that day or for the day that you call us home, Father, would you give us the boldness and the confidence that is ours when we realize who you are and what you have called us to and equipped us for. Father, thank you that, that as you have called us and saved us from an eternity without you, you call us into life in all its fullness with you. And Lord, you know that in living that life for you, we will face opposition from our own sinful flesh as we seek to rid ourselves of it or from without. And yet, Jesus, you declare that you have overcome the world. And so we trust in your victory and we trust in your help, your sustaining grace, your daily offer of mercies that are new every morning. Lord, may you embolden us. May you help us to depend on you in prayer. May you make us so attuned to your voice and your leading that we are ready to participate as you lead us on. And all the way, we pray that you would help us to praise you and continually offer that sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that declare your name, not forgetting to do good to others. And so we pray, Father that by how we live our lives and how we respond to the opposition that will come, you would be glorified. And it is for your glory and in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.